Hi, I'm Ollie. And I'm Kendall. And this is The Group Project. All right, everyone, we're here today with Colleen Weiler, who is the Jessica Ricos Fellow at Whale and Dolphin Conservation. Thank you for joining us, Colleen. Hi, thank you so much for having me today. This is really exciting. I love podcasts. I'm a big fan. This is the my first one to be an interviewee. All right. Awesome. Yeah. Well, thanks for coming on. So yeah. you um, work at the at WDC. Can you tell us a little bit about um, your work and kind of maybe more so even what brought you to that work? Yeah, my work currently is mostly focused on recovery and protection of endangered orca populations or, or killer whales. Um, I'll refer to them as orcas, but either one is, is really um, applicable to the same species. And um, most of what I do is focused on the critically endangered southern resident orcas uh, that are here in the Pacific Northwest. Um, I've been working at WDC for about five years and my, I, I, I love this story of kind of how I came to, to work for the organization. And it has to go back for, for quite a ways. Um, but, Great. you know, I, I grew up in the Midwest. I grew up in Michigan, which has a lot of water, but not a lot of whales. <laughs> and <laughs> like most kids that were born in the 80s, uh, my first real introduction to whales was watching Free Willy. Um, yeah, I, I remember seeing like probably dragging my mom to take me to see that in the theater and just loving it and becoming totally obsessed with, with orcas and whales and all things marine mammal related. And at the end of that movie, um, a little thing pops up after the credits that says, you know, if you want to help whales, I think at that time it was right to the whale adoption project. I think they did get a website shortly after that, but back then it was still, uh, had to put something in the mail Right. and you could, uh, support this organization and, and adopt a humpback whale. And so I ended up doing that for several years. I adopted a humpback whale named Colt and then eventually, um, you know, wanted to, spend my money on on other things being a teenager Um, but then years and years later I found this organization called whale and dolphin conservation after um, I think this was while I was in grad school and I was looking up different marine related conservation groups and came across this organization which had a, a mission and goals and and did work that perfectly aligned with what I wanted to do. Um, and I ended up doing an internship with them shortly after I finished grad school. And I was sitting in the office and looking at their list of humpback whales and realized that they had the same whale that I had adopted as a, as a kid. They had colts. No kidding. Yeah. And it turned out that the Whale Adoption Project, which was an organization, that, that same organization that comes up at the end of Free Willy, um, that I got newsletters from and information and all this stuff like two decades ago was uh, it had turned into the North American office for whale and dolphin conservation. Whoa. 
I know. That's so cool. <laughs> I know. I love it. And I didn't even realize that until I was sitting in the office and saw my whale on the wall. I was like, oh my God, it's Colts. Did you recognize it? Like, Well, I, I still haven't seen him in person. Uh-huh. I've just seen pictures of him. And, you know, they we, we still have, WDC does uh, humpback and orca adoptions to help connect people to these individual whales and um, it's a it's a really great way to to learn more about them and support our organization. And he's unfortunately he's not seen super often, um, but he does show up in the Gulf of Maine every once in a while. And uh, apparently he's quite a show off. He likes to to mug the boats and <laughs> put on yeah put on a performance. Um, but I haven't been lucky enough to see him in person yet. But I definitely recognize the name. Um, humpbacks you can identify by that pattern on the underside of their tail. It's called a fluke, uh-huh. and each whale has a very specific uh, individual pattern of black and white marks, and that's how we know who's who. Right. Um, so I, I don't think I remembered what his fluke looked like. I just remembered the name, and then reading about it, I was like, "Oh my gosh, this is my whale!" <laughs> so, so how many um, humpback whales? Are there like tracked in the world? Is that is that like a known number, or is it like we know that there's roughly X number or something? Um, I don't know the answer to that. I can tell you that uh, the Gulf of Maine population, which is the one that that WDC works pretty closely with, I think has about a thousand, maybe between nine hundred and a thousand. Um, individuals right now and that is that's a specific population um just within the last few years the national marine fishery service which is the u.s agency that kind of oversees marine mammal research and protection in the u.s um took humpback whales uh worldwide and, and divided them into these distinct population segments and that kind of reflects the the growing information and research that we have on humpback whales and looking at these these different populations. So it's not just all one group worldwide, but these different segments that have unique behaviors and travel different places for breeding and for feeding. Um, and, you know, there's different populations in the Pacific and the Atlantic and Antarctic and... All and, different places. And orcas are the same in that way. Like there's there are different um, groups and and populations. Like you mentioned, I think the southern resident population. Which mm-hmm. um, can you maybe give a, a little bit of a zoomed in view of what the southern residents are? And um... yeah, yeah. So the southern resident orcas also have that status of being a distinct population segment which means that they are a, they're recognized officially as a unique group. Um, They're genetically distinct from, from other orcas, both immediately here in the Pacific Northwest and throughout the rest of the world. They don't interbreed with other groups of orcas. They have uh, these specific characteristics that are only found in this particular group. Um, They have a unique culture that is, 
just Southern resident culture. They have very specific uh, acoustic dialects and the way they communicate with each other that's different than other groups of orcas. Um, they are part of the the resident ecotype, which is a, a name we use here in the Northwest to describe fish-eating orcas. So they are fish specialists, mostly on salmon. That's one of their unique traits. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, they live in these really tightly knit family groups. They stay with their moms for life, both male and female offspring. Um, and they, yeah, there's, they're very socially complex, um, very, very tightly bonded with each other. And again, that's a little bit different than, than some of the other orcas, both in our area and worldwide. So, um, have you read Carl Safina's book, Beyond Words? Yes, I have. <laughs> I read that, and it was just he gave a very moving look into the lives of orcas. There's just so much depth there. Um, And Mm -hmm. I was wondering if you could maybe describe a little bit of why you feel such a strong connection to orcas. And it seems like you got the job. You went into the office for the (laughs) (laughs) It seems like you got the job. But um, why do you feel such a strong connection to orcas and feeling so drawn to um, to care for their well-being and um, so that they're able to stay around. Yeah, I think it really does go back to that childhood love and fascination with all whales, but specifically orcas and having that immediate introduction through a movie to um, just how amazing they are as the species and I mean they're they're certainly because of <laughs> because of free willy uh, and probably um, other other means they're the most recognized and well-known species of whale people see that black and white coloring and they immediately know what it is for the most part they know it's an orca they may not know the difference between different populations of orcas and um, these different ecotypes that exist, but they know it's an orca. So, uh, yeah, just just being totally in love with them as a kid and kind of clinging to that through through growing up and through adulthood. Um, and then learning more about them, I just became more and more fascinated by the differences in the populations and how intelligent they are, how family-oriented they are. I think they're their way of communicating is so amazing and fascinating. And just the more I I learn about them through the work that I'm doing now, um, as well as just, you know, being enamored of them as a kid and trying to learn more about them, just the more you learn, the more you want to learn because they are so incredible and, and amazing and awe inspiring. Um, and that applies to a lot of other whale species for me as well. I mean, I, Humpback's another favorite of mine, and kind of the same thing. The more you learn, the more you want to learn. Um, yeah, and I think also the the similarities in these different populations to humans is really remarkable, the way that they live in these family groups and share knowledge and information and have these specific cultures that they pass down by teaching their young about them. Um, again, it's just signs of how smart they are and, and 
how unique they are and then also how similar they are to to us. So speaking about like you just mentioned like passing down cultural information from like the older to the younger generations um is that like a train like they just kind of do this like what are the i don't know what even the right question to ask but like what are the means to to passing that information down um or i don't i I don't know if that makes sense (laughs) it does (laughs) But I don't know if I have a good answer for that one either because I think that's something we don't really know yet. Uh, It's definitely an area of ongoing research and a number of different scientists are looking at cultural transmission in orcas and in other whale species. And we, we know that there are these very unique behaviors and like methods of getting food and even what types of food um, exist in populations and are not found in other populations. Hmm. So, yeah, and there, you know, there are genetic differences between populations as well, but really the lines seem to be drawn by these, uh, these behavioral and cultural differences. And um, unfortunately from back in the sixties and seventies, when, when orcas were still being captured to put into marine parks, we do know that ones that we think only eat fish or only eat other marine mammals are capable of eating another type of food. Um, for example, a lot of the, the orcas in captivity back then and now are fed stuff that they their family groups would not necessarily eat in the wilds. Mm-hmm. But they figure it out. They learn to eat it. Like they have to eat it, or they they die. Um, so they can do it, but they don't. So the question is, well, why don't they? And it's probably because they learn what to eat and how to get it from who they're spending time with, which is their family groups. So <laughs> that doesn't really answer your question. But the the answer is that we don't know. We don't know if yeah. it's you know, learn by doing, or if it's transmitted vocally, um, observing them, like foraging, you'll often see the the younger members of a population are kind of like hanging back and watching. Um, there are some instances of, of uh, especially in like the mammal eating orca populations, they might go after birds or smaller prey, which could be practice for going after the bigger stuff. Um, Researchers have seen something that we could call teaching um, in some populations of orcas and the adults are demonstrating behaviors and then helping the young to do that behavior. So it it sure looks like teaching. I don't know what we can call it, but (laughs) yeah. I think one of the things that I thought was... um just so interesting from reading in this book and then also hearing you speak was that they don't intermingle with each other, like how culturally they're really, they are distinct and they kind of keep to themselves. And so that that actually adds another, um, another challenge for if one of those populations is struggling, it's not that they can just go into um, an inner raid with one of the other groups because they are so 
distinctly separate. Right. And especially for the Southern resident orcas, there are other resident orcas in the area where there's a Northern resident population and there's different groups of Alaskan residents, but they, they all avoid each other. (laughs) They don't really intermix and they're so specialized as to what they eat too. Um, Especially for the Southern residents, prey depletion and not having enough salmon available is one of their biggest threats. So you kind of think, well, if only they would, you know, go up and, and join the northern residents or just learn to eat something else, they would they would have a, a better chance of of making it. They'd, they'd cause me a lot less headaches. But, <laughs> <laughs> but again, you know, they have their own unique culture and they're they're following that. So we can't really ask them to do something else and to respect that. And then I wonder if you've witness this I've just heard about it just the how and you mentioned they're so family oriented and they're really close they, they have super strong attachments um, sim- like in ways that I think humans rec- would recognize their own attachment to family and to their kids and um, that there's grieving when when one of their family members dies or mm-hmm. you know is taken I think if that's still happening but um have you witnessed that or do you have more that you could explain about that? Yeah, I, I think uh, last summer, um, Tahlequah, who was the, the Southern resident orca mother who got worldwide attention when her newborn calf died and she spent 17 days um, attending the body, carrying it around with her. That, that really put the spotlight on the southern resident population and it really highlighted the fact that you know they can they can tell their story better than than we ever can um, but that was just a, a very wrenching example of the grief that we know they can go through when they lose a family member um, and and gives us a little glimpse into what they might be experiencing when that happens and in a population that has such tight family bonds. Um, I've, I'm familiar with a couple other instances in the Southern resident population of that happening and and researchers have observed it. Um, I have not seen it in the orcas myself, but I I actually have seen that same behavior with bottlenose dolphins down in Southern California um, of an adult carrying around a, a deceased calf. And it is something that has been seen in some of these other whale and dolphin populations where there are similar, very tight family bonds or, or very uh, a tight social structure. Um, often mothers will be seen, uh, if they do lose a calf, they will carry the body with them for some period of time. Um, and it's also been seen between close family members uh, that aren't mother calf, but um, maybe aunt or uh, brother or sister or some related individual. So in these these really highly social species, um, you know, just like us, when they when they lose somebody close to them, they know it. Right. Yeah. So you we've kind of talked around this a little bit, but what is the current 
um, kind of state of specifically the southern resident orcas um, in terms of um, you know their population, how they're doing, and um, you know, where are we right now with that? The southern resident orcas, in general, um, aren't aren't doing really well at the moment. Unfortunately, they are uh, endangered, and they are the only endangered orca population on the U.S. endangered species list. Um, last year they hit a 30-year population low with just 74 individuals left. That was after a particularly rough few years of a high number of deaths in the population and no new calves being born and surviving since um, the fall of 2015. So they went about three years without having a surviving calf And at the same time, new research came out that showed that they were actually having a really high number of of miscarriages in the population. So they were getting pregnant, but they weren't able to sustain those pregnancies and have them result in a healthy calf. And that research directly linked it to nutritional stress. So that's certainly one of the biggest threats to this uh, unique population is just not having enough to eat. And unfortunately, that kind of compounds with the other threats of um, contaminants and pollution in the water, which can is, is probably also having an impact on those failed pregnancies um, because they're affected by uh, toxics, which can impact their reproductive and immune systems. Um, and also noise in the ocean from vessel traffic, from construction, industrial, development, all kinds of stuff that just makes the ocean a noisier place, which makes it harder for them to find food and communicate with each other um, and also can increase stress levels. So all of those things kind of all work together, unfortunately, uh, against the recovery of this unique population. So, and, and geographically, where does the southern resident population, where do they live and like, do they migrate around? The southern residents can range anywhere from Monterey Bay, California, where they were actually just recently seen a couple weeks ago, up to, they have been seen as far north as southeast Alaska, but they generally kind of only go up to about the southern end of Vancouver Island in British Columbia. And uh, they're, they're in the coastal waters, um, usually during the winter and the spring. And then they go into the Salish Sea waters, which are those transboundary waters between the U.S. and Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, that includes Puget Sound, um, San Juan Islands area, the Strait of Juan de Fuca. That's their historical summer feeding grounds. So they tend to be up there. Um, Usually they start coming back around this time of year, April or May, and they'll stay in that area through the fall. They they don't migrate like large whale species do, like humpbacks and um, right whales and blue whales and gray whales over here in the Pacific. We know their migration patterns between summer and winter, and they're traveling between very specific feeding areas and breeding areas. Mm-hmm. But orcas are following their food source. So they do travel around, but they're looking for food all the time. So they tend to travel to places. um, And again, this is where that cultural knowledge comes back into play. They're going back to areas where they think that food will be at different 
times of the year. So that trip down to Monterey they took recently um, was probably to look for uh, winter and spring Chinook coming back to the Central Valley system in California. That's about that time of year when those salmon start showing up. Um, They're usually off the Oregon coast in March as well, February, March, when spring Chinooks start coming back to the Columbia River system. Um, So they know when and where to go to find these historically uh, big salmon runs that are coming back to to different watersheds out here. And the primary diet is salmon, right? Do they eat other fish or any other things, or is it pretty much just salmon? It is primarily salmon. There's a lot of good information on what they're eating in the summer when they are, again, back in that Salish Sea area. It's a little bit easier to get information when they're all um, in one spot that's close to close to getting boats out on the water to look at what they're eating. Yeah. Um, we have some information about what they're eating when they're on the outer coast, and that seems to be, it's, it's still predominantly salmon, but they are diversifying a little bit more. Um, it's not just all Chinook. They'll mix in some coho, uh, some steelhead. They're also eating halibut and lingcod and some other types of fish, but it looks like salmon is, is definitely still the, the preferred food to go after. And that kind of underscores the, the need for salmon, um, healthy, uh, like a healthy salmon population for a healthy whale population. Is that right? Yeah, definitely. And especially Chinook salmon, because of the different salmon species, those are the biggest and the, the fattiest and kind of the most, the most bang for your buck if you're an orca or a human <laughs> going after <laughs> right. some salmon dinner. Um, you know, you're spending a lot of time and energy to find food and a Chinook makes that kind of worth it because it's nice and big and nutritious um, and is a lot better than uh, a smaller type of salmon. So just for a little bit of scale, like how big are these whales? (laughs) Like how, like an adult male or female, like how enormous are they? Like I've seen some from kind of from a distance in the water Mm-hmm. in Puget Sound, but not easy to get a good scale of how huge they are. Yeah, and there's size differences between the ecotypes, too. So okay. the the bigs orcas that we have here that are the mammal eaters are pretty big. Uh, they're actually bigger than the residents um, that they're going after, you know, pretty good size and large prey. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Orcas are bigger than you think they are, um, especially when you view them, you know, out on the water. They are the largest species of dolphin, so they're they're pretty big. And even some of those, uh, the the smaller great whales, the big baleen whales. Um, I mean, they're about the size of of like a minke whale, which is one of the smaller smaller baleen whales. But mm-hmm. the the residents can get up to about twenty six feet. For the males, um, about 23 feet for females, and the the calves can get are, are born at about seven to eight feet, and it always kind of amuses me when you are looking at them and you see a calf next to an adult. They look so tiny and right. small, and then you remember that calf is already eight feet long, <laughs> weighs 400 pounds at least, and that's huge in yeah. comparison to anything else. 
Um, but when they're next to the adults, they just look tiny. It's pretty cute. Yeah. Yeah. So I have two questions for you. Um, one is what are the biggest threats to orcas? And the other is, um, at this point, do you see that the orca population, um, can rebound and whichever order you think is the best one to answer those in? We've, yeah, we've already talked a little bit about the threats to Southern residents and the threats certainly vary by population. For example, the, the bigs orcas, the mammal eating ones are doing great on the prey side of things. They have a pretty plentiful food source. They are thriving. They're having calves like crazy. Um, the population's growing. We're seeing them more and more often. Uh, but they they are still very highly contaminated. So the mammal-eating orcas that are eating higher up on the food chain are getting these just uh, enormous doses of those pollutants like DDT and PCBs, stuff that's been banned in the U.S. for decades but is still very, very present in our, in our water and marine ecosystems. Um, but they are less impacted by those contaminants because they have so much food available. <laughs> so uh, those pollutants get stored in blubber and um, they're metabolized and kind of circulate through the, the orca's systems when they don't have enough food. So that's why the pollution and the food stress mm-hmm. thing is kind of a double whammy for the southern residents, but doesn't seem to be causing an issue yet, I'll say, in the, in the bigs orcas. But in other parts of the world, for other orca populations, contaminants are still a really big issue. Um, noise is kind of a, a prevalent issue for, for all whale species and all populations of orcas. It can cause some, it can cause um, direct harm and injury, possibly even death. It definitely disrupts what they're doing, can displace them from areas that they like to go for feeding or for having babies or safe places. Um, So that's definitely a a prevalent issue for all species. And then again, for the Southern residents specifically, it's really that trifecta of noise and disturbance, not enough food and pollution. Um, And I know I I have painted kind of a scary and and negative picture of their future, (laughs) (laughs) but we definitely... um, what, what keeps me going in my job and what I try to do, especially here in Oregon, uh, is to get people involved in their recovery because I think it definitely can happen, but it is a team effort and it's something that you know everybody needs to work on together because these threats come from essentially fundamental changes to the orca's ecosystem and home. That requires on, on our part, on the human side of things, changing the way that we interact with and use our natural environment. So that's a combination of the big high-level policy changes plus the simple and basic and everyday changes that we can make in our lives that create a healthier environment for everybody, for orcas, salmon, and for ourselves. Um, the orcas, the southern residents, did... Uh, rebound after an initial uh, depletion in the 60s and 70s. They they climbed up to a level of 98 individuals in the 90s. 
So there's definitely room for them to come back. We just have to make that room for them. Um, and that includes, you know, bringing back salmon populations, habitat restoration and protection, reducing contaminants and pollutants in the water, and reducing that noise and disturbance. So there's things that everyone can do. Um, you know, you can talk to agencies and your lawmakers about making those high-level policy changes, then you can change certain things in your everyday life, um, again, to make a healthier environment for everybody. Can you outline maybe some of those things? I know that um, there is, you know, like, was it Orcas Love Rain Gardens, mm-hmm. that type of thing. Um, are there other, maybe you could talk about that and any other specific things that we can do and that other folks can do to um, really kind of boots on the ground um, level get involved and or changes they might want to make or things like that. Absolutely. So the Orcas Love Rain Gardens is a great place to start. That helps people. That is a website, so Google it. Okay. We'll (laughs) Um, link it up too. Fantastic. Um, So that gets people started on creating these rain gardens, which helps to filter contaminants out of stormwater as it comes down and uh, prevents those toxins from, sorry, prevents those toxics from washing out into marine environments and into um, watersheds where where salmon are located because uh, these contaminants can also harm salmon. And building from that, you can practice natural lawn care, so not using any pesticides or fertilizers in your lawn and garden because, again, those do wash out with rainwater and end up in our watersheds. And similar to that, in your house, you can switch over to non-toxic cleaners or natural cleaning products. All of that stuff that goes down the drain is going to end up in the marine ecosystem and impact salmon and orcas and the whole food web. So, you know, it's not just salmon and orcas, but also the, the tiny little forage fish and even the very small marine critters that are the base of everything else. That's all, all the food that's being eaten so- <laughs> in yeah. So it sounds like, you know, water health is a huge, yeah. huge issue. Um, and I know, like, I think on your website, it talks a, a bit about, like, plastic bags and presenting danger um, to the whales. Um, what it, What about that specifically? Is that something that um, causes trouble for them? In what way? That's kind of back to the marine litter issue. So plastic bags, other single-use plastics. It's definitely a hot topic right now with straws and plastic bags and everything right. that's been in the news. And that that is a huge part of watershed health in general and ocean health in general is reducing the amount of litter and debris that's in the ocean and in rivers because that does have an impact on the survival of again, the whole food web, the the little tiny uh, zooplankton that are what juvenile salmon eat. Um, if they're eating microplastics and, and other trash, their survival decreases, and then that decreases salmon survival, and that impacts the orcas. So, it, yeah, it's, it's all, it's definitely all interconnected. So that whole 
reduce, reuse, recycle, refuse. <laughs> right. <laughs> to the four R's. And so, yeah. So you mentioned kind of stuff for um, folks in, like not using um, harsh chemicals on their lawn and, and different things like that and detergents. Is that something, I know that that's definitely something really sp- specific for coastal folks, but is there stuff um, for people who maybe don't live on the coast or don't live in the Pacific Northwest uh, that, that they could do specifically or would it be pretty much the same? You know, it is actually pretty much the same because even even people that live um, in the middle of the country or like me growing up in the in the in the Midwest, um, everyone lives in a watershed, and where you are has a connection to the ocean. So, being really mindful about what goes down the drain or what's on your lawn and what is is going into your local watershed um, connects to what is going into the water in the ocean. So always being mindful that wherever you are, you're in a watershed and wherever you are, you're connected to the, to the ocean um, applies to everybody. <laughs> and you had mentioned a few times about sound being um, harmful to the whales. Like, can you give examples of specific things? Like, is it any size boat? Is it like, big projects that are being done out in the ocean or it really is I mean it's it's all of the above it's the the smaller recreational boats that are on the water some of them engaged in whale watching and some of them not um, those can be loud kind of when when they're present um, and when they're going by and there's a lot of good research that has linked the speed of small vessels to um, immediately received noise. It's big container ships that are, you know, moving moving goods and products and oil tankers and stuff that are passing by. Those are very loud <laughs> um, when you're listening on on hydrophones. When those boats go by, it just it drowns out everything. But there's there's new technology coming online that can uh, make those boats quieter. There's current mitigation by making them slower or maybe, and this is, this is a subject of ongoing research, um, maybe limiting the, the times of day um, or the number of boats that those really large vessels are transiting uh, can possibly reduce the amount of noise that they produce um, or, you know, uh, there's there's research showing that maybe the orcas forage less at night because um, they are they, they do mostly rely on sound to find food, but uh, they might use their eyesight at the very end to catch a fish. So it could be a combination of things. Um, but if they're if they are foraging less at night, maybe those large vessels do more night trips to reduce their impact on on uh, interrupting the whale's foraging behavior. Construction in the water, like building new docks or maintenance, there's there's certainly mitigation practices that can be put into place there to make them quieter or to offer a warning to marine life in the area. Um, they can do things like a slow ramp up of construction and noise that gives whales and other marine animals a chance to 
hear that it's coming, that it's going to get louder and hopefully leave the area to avoid any potential injury. Is that um, a combination of people like you guys helping to educate people and legislation? Is that how that would, those sort of changes would come about? Those are, yeah, those are really some of the um, kind of the higher level policy changes that I mentioned, which is a combination of through regulation and rulemaking, but then also through educating people and talking to them and getting them to speak up in favor of that as well. Because the more people that we have speaking up for the orcas, the definitely the bigger a difference it makes. And then, um, so June is whale month. Um, is that just a time like orca month? Yeah. (laughs) Oh, orca month, not just whale month, orca month. So June is orca month. Um, Will you tell us a little bit about that? I am so excited for Orca Month this year. This is (laughs) going to be our fourth year doing it in Oregon. It's a celebration that was started, um, I think, 13 years ago in Washington State by our partners at Orca Network. And they initiated the first one just after the Southern residents were listed under the Endangered Species Act in 2005. And it's really focused on bringing awareness about this population and the threats that they face and what people can do. And so for the past few years, it's been Orca Awareness Month. And this year, we actually switched it to Orca Action Month um, because people are pretty aware of them at this point with all the recent attention um, given to the Southern residents. So now we want to make it more of an action-oriented thing. (laughs) So... This is going to be our biggest Orca Action Month in Oregon. We're putting together about a dozen events throughout the state, and it's going to be everything from uh, talks and presentations to documentary screenings to really hands-on work like a beach cleanup and um, hopefully some salmon habitat restoration work. And we're even going to have a couple screenings of Free Willy. Uh (laughs) Yeah. That's my that's my Orca Month dream. <laughs> and Canada, to bring it all back around again, um, Free Willy features the Southern Resident Orcas as Willie's family in the movie. So the footage of the wild orcas in that movie and the, the vocalizations and um, what the the captive orca hears when he's held in the in the park in the movie, that's the Southern Resident Orcas. Wow. And yeah, so, you know, linking this movie that's a childhood favorite of like everybody <laughs> back <laughs> to a very real family of orcas that's kind of still in trouble today, um, hopefully will inspire people to, to connect that same love of that movie to, um, to current love of these orcas and an, an inspiration to, to help them survive. Uh, do you have any books or movies that you could recommend for, um, oh, sorry, uh, let me go back. Is all the information about Orca Month on your website, on WDC's website? We will have information up soon, but the most up-to-date website will just be orcamonth.com. Okay. This is, yeah, this is an effort with uh, multiple groups. We are in a coalition of organizations called Orca Salmon Alliance that has 17 national, regional, and local groups that all work together on orca and salmon issues. And 
we've uh, co-hosted Orca Month with Orca Network for the past four years. Um, yeah, so orcamonth.com will have all the latest information. Great. And do you have any books or movies that you could recommend? Oh, where to start with that? <laughs> Free Willy, of course. Obviously, I love Free Willy. <laughs> um, the documentary Blackfish is a really good, it provides a really great history of the impact of captivity on the southern resident orcas and what has happened and what has changed since then. There's a number of documentaries in the work right now about Southern Resident Orcas. There's a, a new documentary coming out soon called Dam to Extinction, which specifically links the Southern Resident Orcas with the Lower Snake River dams and the impact that those have had on Snake River Chinook, which used to be the biggest and fattiest of all Chinook in the Pacific Northwest. And so the decline of that specific run of salmon has likely had a pretty big impact on food availability for the orcas. I'm looking forward to, to seeing that one, and we, we will hopefully have some screenings of that for Orca Month. Um, some of my favorite books, if we, if we want to be specific to orcas, um, uh, Eric Hoyt, who is a researcher with WDC, wrote really the, the quintessential book about orcas, um, a long time ago, it's called Orca, the Whale Called Killer, and tells these great stories about kind of the start of orca research in the Pacific Northwest in the 1970s. And Eric was there with some of the researchers who got everything started. So it's a story of of that experience and and when we first started learning all these different things about orcas. Um, there's a book called The Cultural Lives of Whales and Dolphins that really dives into those questions around culture and how information is transmitted in different whale species. That one is a fantastic one. Anything by Carl Safina or Sylvia Earle <laughs> for just general ocean stuff is is great. <laughs> can keep going but <laughs> no this is so good i have a good stack for beside my bed <laughs> me too growing. to wrap it up we always have one question that we close with and it is what is one thing you would ask of your fellow human beings i would ask that we be mindful that we share this earth with other creatures that live here and that our actions have implications far beyond just our immediate surroundings and environment. And I think especially in the, the internet age, <laughs> everything is so immediate and we tend to not, not think of things in the long term and kind of outside of, of our worlds, our little personal worlds. Um, but yeah, again, just, just being mindful of everything we do from making that choice to use a plastic bag or not use a plastic bag or to, you know, what, what we're choosing to eat for dinner. 
um, has an impact on something. So keeping that in mind and making choices with that consideration, um, again, goes back to, you know, to, to save the Southern residents, we really need to think about these fundamental changes and how we interact with the world around us. So thanks Colleen for joining us. And again, um, more information can be found about all the stuff we talked about on whales.org and we'll also link up all of this stuff, but Colleen, we just want to thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you guys for having me. This was a lot of fun and hopefully I didn't, uh, overwhelm you with information but that's that's my job (laughs) (laughs) perfect thank you so much yeah